is so great. Uh, one of the things I most love about our church is the incredible spirit of generosity of both time and resources really all throughout the year. And it's just remarkable to see the joy on those faces and to see how that joy spread to our community yesterday. Uh, in this season of giving, I don't know about you, but uh, my husband and I receive a lot of requests from some fabulous ministries and organizations. Everybody's kind of looking for that end of the year contribution. And as we weigh those things, we always begin by saying, you know what, our first priority is going to be to our local church. And we'll give to some other things as well, but first we're going to make that kind of decision. And maybe like some of you, um, our income is not real predictable. And so while we give kind of moderately throughout the year, we wait till the end of the year and see how it's going to shape up because my husband's a commodities trader. So to say it's unpredictable is really an understatement. And there have been years where we actually lost money, and I wondered if the church should kind of give to us and give that contribution back. But that doesn't work that way, I guess. Um, and some of you might be freelance, or maybe you own your own business, um, or maybe you might get a Christmas bonus that you didn't expect at the end of the year. So the end of the year is a time when maybe we adjust our giving or think about that extra sacrificial gift. And in the pocket in front of you, there's an envelope. And I'd like you to pull that out for a second because I want you to look at, at what it says. Um, this is about the future here at the church. If you go to the 1030 gathering regularly, you know that it's packed and uh, we want to make room for more. Uh, the leaders of this church are discerning what that's going to look like in 2015, but it's going to require resources. And so there's a fund, a year-end fund that you could give an extra gift to, um, maybe a Christmas offering when you come to the gathering next week or put in the mail before the end of the year. And I'd encourage you to pray about this. We've been talking about this this past week, my husband and me, and what could we give to our church um, that would help build for the future and make room for more people. So please give that um, some really careful thought. Well, we were talking about traditions, and our family has a multitude of Christmas traditions. In fact, I'm astonished, even though our daughters are now in their early 20s, at how tightly they hold to these traditions. In fact, woe to me if I alter any one of these precious procedures, even in the slightest way. There is a sequence of events which must be done the same way every year. So on Christmas Eve, for example, um, we have a dinner. It has to be Swedish meatballs. And then we move into the living room, and we sit by our Christmas tree, and Warren uh, pulls out his Bible, and he opens up to read uh, from Luke 2, the Christmas story. So I know what you're thinking. What a spiritual family. Oh, man. Wow, what a nice scene. The dog's probably sitting there with them. It's just, just beautiful, sweet scene. Not so much, because since the girls were really little, they have competed uh, for who's going to play what parts in the manger scene. So this is our manger scene. Someone uh, made it for us when the girls were toddlers. So now it's a little threadbare and worn, but it's much loved. And they want to play the parts. In other words, they want to say the lines of each character. The angel is the most coveted part because the angel has the most lines. And so my husband has initiated kind of an auction where they decide who's going to play what parts. And whoever gets to pick first gets only one choice, then the next person gets to pick two characters, and so on, until all the parts are assigned. And this is quite competitive, so not the sweet scene you pictured. But anyway, uh, then he's ready to read the story. My favorite character is actually not a character, but I love this little star on top of the manger scene because it reminds me of the magnificent light, the wonder of that holy night long ago. And I love this verse because that light was predicted um, back in the book of Isaiah. And this is from Isaiah 9, chapter 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. 
On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, you don't have to grab your Bibles today because we're going to be uh, hopping around some various scriptures. But last weekend, Jarrett started this series and took us to John chapter 1. And it's not often thought of as a Christmas kind of passage, but it actually is. And I think it's one of the most beautifully poetic parts in the entire Bible. So we're going to go to verse 4. You may remember that it starts by talking about Jesus as the Word of God. And then in verse 4, here's what we see. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, the bold letters there are for me, but I noticed, and I'm struck by the fact, that it's for all people, it's for everyone. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, when the angels appeared to these astonished shepherds, here's the words they proclaimed. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for some of the people. No, all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah, the Lord. You see, the characters in the manger scene underscore a truth that we're going to explore together today, and here's what it is. Jesus, the light of the world, is the most radically inclusive being who ever walked on this planet. And this manger scene tells us so. You think about who is the Christmas message for, and who did God come to save? Who did he extend his light and his love to? And if you look at this eclectic collection of people, it may not be who you would choose. If you thought about who would I want at the beginning of the most significant life ever on the, on the history of the world, who would I want to be there? But this is who God assembled, and it gives us clues to the truth of God's radical inclusivity. So I want to walk through some of these characters with you, starting with Mary. Let's talk about Mary. What do we know about her? <laughs> Great little picture there. Cuddly. We know that she was a Jewish girl. Um, she was from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David and a virgin. We know she was engaged to a carpenter named Joseph from the town of Nazareth. And we also know that they were both probably very poor. Uh, since Jewish girls married young, Mary was likely a teenager when the angel appeared to her. So the first thing that we observe is that the light of the world is for people of all ages. Now, in our day, I think we tend to honor and revere children. We treat them like they're super-duper special. But back in the ancient times, not so much. It's a great book I want to recommend to you by my friend John Orberg. It's called Who Is This Man? It's a great one to read at this time of year. And one of the things that John notes in that book is that children in ancient times were noted for fear, weakness, and helplessness. To be a child was to be at risk, really, and very vulnerable. Unwanted children were often abandoned, left to suffer on their own. In fact, it was a practice. It was called exposure. And children were taken to a dump, and they were left there, and unless someone rescued them, they would die. So it's actually quite incredible that Jesus, the creator of the universe, would come as a baby, a vulnerable baby, and be born to a very young girl. Later, as an adult, Jesus treasured children, you may remember this moment that's described in the Bible when some people, some of his followers, actually some of his really important followers, really uh, rebuked Jesus for taking time with children. And here's what he said. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, 
for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You see, Jesus ushered in a radically different view of young people, one that resulted by the late 14th, or excuse me, 4th century with a Christian emperor outlying this practice of exposure, saying that will not happen ever again, and the beginning of what we now call orphanages, which were attached to either a cathedral or a monastery. Jesus taught us that all human beings have dignity and worth regardless of their age. And of course, this applies to people on the elderly age spectrum as well. Mary shows us something else, though, about God's radical inclusivity. The light of the world is not for just people of all ages, but for both genders, both genders. Mary represents the truth that Jesus treated women with a vastly different level of respect and honor and empowerment than was true 2,000 years ago. In the ancient Roman Greco world, did you know there was actually a huge shortage of women? Ortberg writes that there were 140 men for every 100 women. Why is that? Well, because so many girl babies were left to die when they got born the wrong sex. Jesus modeled an entirely different way of relating to women. He included women among his followers. He allowed them to travel and study and learn alongside the men. This was incredibly radical. He gave dignity to women. In ancient times, women were always the property of some man. You were either the property of your father or your husband, and all the laws treated women as property. But Jesus gave women an entirely different place in his community, and there are so many moments in the Bible that show this. But perhaps the best way I could summarize Jesus' inclusivity toward women would be to quote Dorothy Sayers. She's a brilliant scholar and writer. She was the first woman to receive a degree from Oxford, and this is what she wrote. Perhaps it is no wonder that the women were first at the cradle and last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed, or patronized, who never made arch jokes about them, who rebuked without demeaning and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously. Big deal. Who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no ax to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend. So the light of the world is available to people of all ages and both genders. Now the next character that we want to look at who reveals God's radical inclusivity are the shepherds, the shepherds. This one is really falling apart, but he used to look a little better than that. Um, you and I may have a tendency to romanticize the whole idea of being a shepherd. I mean, what a great job, right? You're outside, you can look at the stars at night, and you stand there and hold that wooden staff thing, and all those cuddly sheep adore you and run around. But that is actually not at all the case with shepherds back in that time, because the truth is they had a terrible reputation. They were the lowest group in the social order of the day. They were considered to be ceremonially unclean, and that's because they worked with manure and dead animals, and if you touched those things, you were not allowed in the temple. Not only that, they couldn't go to the temple because they had to watch the sheep all the time. So they were really regarded as a outcast kind of group. Uh, they were uneducated, they had a rough appearance, they probably didn't smell very good, they were considered to be unworthy of God and definitely unworthy of other humans' respect. So what does this tell us? That the God chose these humble, 
lowly shepherds to be the very first people on earth to hear about the birth of his son? I mean, is that who you and I would have chosen? We would have gone to the political leaders or the religious leaders or the really wealthy people, the big wigs. We certainly would not have chosen the lowest people in society. But God also said through his angels that those shepherds should go see, that they should go find the Christ child. They're the first visitors. And they probably had a big group, and they went from stable to stable and hunting manger to manger until they could find the Christ child. What did Mary and Joseph think about these smelly shepherds showing up to celebrate this birth? So here's what we know from the story of the shepherds. The light of the world is for the least of these. That's who God chose. In God's economy, every single person matters. There is no ladder indicating who matters most. So the poor and the sick, the disabled, the forgotten, the homeless, the uneducated, God's light shines as brightly for them as for anyone that we might consider to be the important people, the people who show up in People magazine. You know, some of us might think, that we're too far away from God for his light to shine on us. We might privately think, you know, the darkness in me, the shame I feel about some of the serious mistakes I have made in my past, I'm not even sure God's love and light could transform me. Maybe I need to clean up my act first before I'd be welcome in God's family, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, God has a special passion for those who are the most far away from him. He pursues us. He wants us to come home into a relationship with him. He says, there is no darkness, no darkness that my light cannot illuminate and transform. Trust me in this. So we discover that God's light is for the least of these. But you know what? He hasn't even excluded the educated and the rich people. And we see this with the wise men. The wise men. After Jesus was born, (laughs) we learn in Matthew chapter 2 that after he was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and they asked, where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. So they have some interaction with King Herod. Herod, by the way, was determined to find this baby and have him killed. He felt very threatened by Jesus. And then in verse 9, it says, After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen where, where it rose and went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts, and you know this, of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So what do we know about these men? Well, you may notice that in the Bible, it never calls them wise men. We, we call them wise men. But we do know that they were definitely men of great learning. The word magi comes from the Greek word magos, which is where we get our word magic. Today, we might call them astrologers. But back then, astronomy and astrology were all part of the same science. So they carefully studied the patterns of the stars. These guys were likely very rich and held in high esteem. Now, I know we all like to picture them by the manger on Christmas night, on that silent night, but if you study the scripture, you understand that they really actually arrived later, probably a few months after the birth, to a home where Mary and Joseph were in Bethlehem with the baby. 
Also, tradition and manger scenes depict three wise men. The Bible doesn't tell us there's only three. We generally get that from the fact that there were three gifts, so we've concluded that. But there actually could have been a lot more. But what is most interesting is where they came from, where they came from. Ancient paintings and photos show us uh, these men, and we know only from Scripture that they came from the east. This was likely parts of what are now either Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, or Yemen. Others believe that maybe they came from Persia, Egypt, or Ethiopia. There's lots of legends told about them, and they've even been given names. Again, you may be surprised these names are not in the Bible, but we think they're called Caspar, Melchior, and Belshazzar, and Belshazzar has black skin. But here's what's important. We are seeing the global reach of God's outrageous love and grace to all people, no matter where they come from, or what they look like to all people because the light of the world, the light of the world is for all races and ethnicities, all of them. You know, when we look at the people that God intended to first celebrate the birth, we are struck again by the radical inclusivity of our Savior. What an eclectic collection of people, the young and the old, those who shop at Walmart and those who are at Neiman Marcus, the uneducated and the super smart, the people from the West and the people from the East, those with light skin, those with dark skin. God's light is equally and readily available to everyone. And here's what's most important, because in light of what's going on in our country right now, in God's economy, everyone matters. And as we long for justice... This is who God is. He's a just God who treats every single person with dignity and respect and loves every single person. So as we approach Christmas this year of 2014, what does it mean for you and me? I mean, it's real nice to agree, okay, God's radically inclusive, that's great. But here's the next step. Jesus calls you and me to be radically inclusive. He calls us to this. This is not optional. It can't be one of those things we say, well, I'm kind of going to go along with everything else that Jesus is asking of me, but that's a part of me I really don't want transformed. Who's on your list that you would not want to include? We all have a list. What kinds of people do you tend to overlook or to think, you know what, I think they're outside of God's love and certainly of my love and attention. But that is not allowed when we're a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus truly means that you and I will be radically inclusive. You know, there's a game that people play uh, when they ask, who would you invite to a dinner party? If we had a beautiful table up here and you had 12 seats at the table, who would you invite to a dinner party? And the real game lets you even pick people who aren't living anymore, you know? So you play this game and think, who would I want to be there? So, of course, some of us think about famous, influential people like Abraham Lincoln or Albert Einstein or Mother Teresa Maybe your mind goes to sports figures. How cool would it be to have Derek Rose at your table? Or maybe you should invite Jay Cutler because he really needs a hug right now and a little bit of love, I think. Um, if you were like me, you might pick artists. I would have you know, Steven Spielberg or Meryl Streep or Aaron Sorkin sitting at my table. But if you were limited to people who are alive and people you actually know and who know you, what kind of people would you put on your list if you're throwing a dinner party? Here's some characteristics that most of us would go to. I would think, well, who's really fun to be with? Who's interesting and life-giving, great conversationalist? Who's an influential person in some arena? Who's an attractive or popular person? And most importantly, who's going to make me feel or look good? You know, if I have them over, 
That's going to elevate me in some way. You and I tend to surround ourselves with people who are like us or people that we want to be approved by, people we aspire to be like, people who make us feel comfortable and valued. What if Jesus threw a dinner party? Who would he invite? We don't have to speculate because he talked about this once in Luke chapter 14. Look at what he said. Once again, he turns everything upside down. He says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or sisters, your relatives. Some of you are happy to hear you don't have to invite your relatives. <laughs> or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You know, the comfortable thing, the safe thing, the normal thing is for you and me to mostly surround ourselves and hang out with people who are roughly our same age, our same race, our same status in society, our same culture. But what if we became more like Jesus? What if we intentionally built bridges what if we walked across the room to the person who is least like us, who we might least want to be in our circle? Who could you include this season? Who could you spend time really listening to? Maybe there's an elderly person who's quite alone. This time of year raises depression for so many people who are really alone. Is there an elderly person that you could visit? Or maybe there's a teenager who you don't even get and you don't understand, but you think, well, maybe I should go on the younger end and sit down with someone who's younger than me. Who could you maybe see as a shepherd in your life, as one of the outcasts, as, as one of the outsiders? Is there someone at work, someone in your neighborhood, uh, someone on your street or in your building? Maybe your shepherd person works where you work, or maybe uh, that person is someone that you're going to come across even at a family gathering or some kind of party. Jesus invites you to extend kindness, maybe even to make an invitation to such a person. He says, look at my manger scene. Look at the collection of people here. There's no one outside my love and grace, and there should therefore be no one outside our circle, no one that we're not willing to invite in and to include. God has tested my heart on this for the past 35 years with a friend of mine named Joe, and I really hesitate to tell this story. I've been back and forth because I don't want to make myself look better than I am. And I think if you hear this story in all of its detail, you'll see that uh, really, when it comes to being radically inclusive, I still have a lot of growing to do. But maybe you can relate to the experience of my husband and me. Uh, we met Joe when we were dating. And uh, we had just gotten engaged, actually. And Joe grew up at an, in a place called Little City, which is in Palatine. He was a ward of the state, an orphan, and they didn't know where to put him, and that's, that's where he ended up. But he had learned about Jesus in his teens, and he found out about our church, and somehow one day he rode his bicycle to the church that we were attending. And our church had a greeting time, just like we do here, and he happened to be sitting in the row behind us. So we turned and we met Joe, and the first thing we discovered is that Joe's a big hugger. Even if you're a total stranger, Joe hugs you. And so he gave us a big hug, and then uh, he asked Warren, he says, well, where do you live? And Warren told him, and Joe says, I know right where that is. Maybe I'll come visit you sometime. And we thought, well, that's probably not going to happen. But the very next Saturday, Joe came riding in his bicycle up, up the driveway, 
And that became a friendship, started a friendship, that essentially has brought Joe as a part of our family. Uh, I have some photos of him. This one is when he first uh, met us. That's the front door of the house where he rode his bike. Warren's looking very young and dapper in his <laughs> dark glasses. Um, this next picture is um, one of my favorites because this is a common experience where they have the Bible open and Warren is walking through some things with him, but also taught Joe how to do a budget and has worked with him on lots of projects throughout the years. Uh, then we have pictures of Joe with our extended family. He's just become you know, a part of everybody and joins us uh, for many holidays. But Joe, when he shows up, my husband calls him a ricocheting bullet. Um, he does not have a cell phone. He never calls ahead. And he just shows up. And honestly, his timing, his timing is amazing. Um, <laughs> It's always when I am the most depleted. He comes charging in the house. He'll probably come this afternoon, actually. And, um, you know, I look up to heaven and I'm like, really, God? He's here now, seriously? You expect me to be gracious? He charges in with energy, a loud voice. He not only hugs you, he picks you up. Our dog is terrified of Joe. <laughs> Runs under the couch. Um, but the truth is, after 35 years... I'm really ashamed that that's still my knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. You know, Joe's in his 50s now. And um, he's had a lot of health issues the last few years. This summer, he had a surgery over at Rush Hospital. And Warren and I were sitting there with him. And then he came to uh, recuperate with us for a couple days because he wasn't allowed to drive. And while we were sitting in the hospital, I had this moment where I thought, God, you are so good. You saw Joe 35 years ago with no family and a huge heart. And you saw us very self-absorbed in our own little safe world. And you decided that we could help each other, that you would bring us together. You assigned this to us. And however inconvenient it has been at times, for me to be friends with Joe. I do know this. It is not a one-way relationship at all. That's what I thought at the beginning. How can we help this kid? But now I see that Joe has inspired me far more. He loves Jesus. It's the best way I can describe him. He has a very simple, childlike faith. He loves to read his Bible, and he will help you with anything. Great generosity. He's consistently positive, even though life has dealt him some real difficult blows. And many years ago, when he first came into our lives, we told him about the organization Compassion International. And Joe, being an orphan, has a special heart for orphans, so he wanted to sponsor some global orphans. And he would have pictures on his refrigerator of the kids that he sponsored. Well, last year, and the president of Compassion knows me, but doesn't know that I know Joe, so it had nothing to do with me. The president of Compassion sent him a letter commending him for being one of their most faithful contributors for 30 years. For 30 years, he has sponsored, it's over 20 orphans that he's sponsored over that time. And I took that letter and I had it framed for Joe and, you know, to put up in his apartment. But, you know, it's typical of him. He doesn't think it's a big deal. He thinks that's how all of us 
who follow Jesus should be. Loving Joe stretches my patience, and it grows me in ways that I probably would not have chosen. I wish I could tell you that I'm the one who you know, thought of this and initiated including him at our table, but it was Jesus. He knew that we needed him there. And Warren likes to say that our relationship has gone from a divine appointment on the day when we first met him to a divine assignment and now has turned into a divine blessing. It's exactly what the three of us needed. This Christmas, what would it look like for you and me to be more radically inclusive? Let me put it this way. Who in your world needs the light of Christ? Who is it for you? Don't walk away from here thinking, oh, she's telling me i got to throow a dinner party for like 12 people. I'm like, oh my gosh, i got enough to do this week. That is not what I'm saying, okay? I'm saying think of a name, someone you could stop by and see. I think of an elderly woman that I've known for many, many years, and I haven't visited her in a while. Her name is Shar, and she's 92. And I think I need to stop. I'm going to. I'm committing in front of you. I'm going to go see her this week and take her a piece of pie because that's what she loves and sit down and just chat with her for a little bit. So it doesn't have to be a huge deal. Maybe you're already going to a party that you're dreading or maybe uh, the relative gathering that you're dreading. And as you walk in, just ask God, who could I be a light to? Who's sitting in the corner that doesn't have anybody to talk to? Who's the most annoying that everybody avoids? Um, Maybe you move toward that person. Maybe you walk across the room. Maybe you have eyes to see at your company party or whatever. Who's not included? And instead of being with the cool people and trying to make myself look better, why don't I move towards the person who most needs the light of Jesus this season? So I hope you're thinking of a name. That's my challenge to you. And again, don't make it a too high a bar that's impossible to reach. Just think of someone that you, that's, God's put in your sphere that maybe no one else is going to think about and touch. And remind yourself all week long, who could it be? And I will take that step. You know, this season is so incredibly busy. Some of you have probably had a hard time concentrating right now because you're thinking about your to-do list and, you know, you're shopping or you're wrapping or you're cooking or whatever you have to do, your end-of-the-year assignments at work. And it just occurred to me that I would love to give us all just a little moment just a little chance to breathe for a second and to think about the light of the world. So I'm going to light this candle. And whether you're sitting in this room or in the corner classroom, I want you to just take a moment. First, just take a deep breath. Let's all inhale real slow. Exhale. And I want you to look at the light and just stare at it for a moment. And we're just going to be silent, no music or anything. I just want you to have a moment to breathe. Look at this light. And thank Jesus for being the light of the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, thank him for the moment that he penetrated your darkness, that he forgave you and cleaned you up and started you on a journey. If you don't know him yet, you could take this moment right now and say, light of the world, are you really for all people? Then would you be my light? And invite him in. I need the light. God, be my light this Christmas. So take a moment to thank him for being the light.
And now my guess is God brought a name to your mind. Think of the name of the person that you can extend this light to this week. Who can you show a gesture of love to? Let's pray. Light of the world, Holy Savior, Son of God, how we thank you for showing up as a baby, a vulnerable little baby, and even surrounding yourself with all kinds of people to remind us, just in case we don't get it, to remind us that you came for everyone, that there is no one outside the reach of your grace and your outrageous love, that every single one of us is in the in circle if we choose to receive your light. Light of the world, help us to be a light this week. May we take the light within us and share it in some meaningful way with someone who's alone or forgotten, someone who's sad or sick, someone who's elderly or a little child. No matter who it is who crosses our path, may we look into their eyes and extend, just take that extra moment and extend love and hope and joy to them. You came to this world to bring peace on earth. May we now be agents of your peace, God. Thank you for your holy light. It's in the name of our Savior, Jesus, the Christ child, we pray. Amen. Well, there's another table Jesus sat at one time. It was the night before his death. And he gathered around him another diverse group of people that included some fishermen and a tax collector, a doctor, and even some women who were a part of the community lingering around the circle. And Jesus broke bread and he looked at all of them and he said, my body is broken for you. And they didn't get it. They didn't understand what was going to happen the next day. But Jesus knew. He knew that from the moment he was in that manger scene, he had a mission and the mission, 33 years later, was going to be to hang on a cross. And when he hung on that cross, he had your face in mind and mine. He hung there for all people. And so he asked us, after that sacrifice, to periodically come to his table and remember him. To take just a moment and to say, I didn't forget I remember. And I thank you for what you did for me. So we're going to have an opportunity to do that. And if you know Jesus, in just a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet and come to the table. And this is going to be a, a self-serve communion experience. There's also a table in the back. All three of them have gluten-free bread if you need it. So you come up and you just take a little piece of bread. And you remember that this is the body of your Savior, Jesus. And you dip it in the cup and you remember that that represents the blood that he shed for you. His astounding grace. And as you take it into your mouth, you say thank you. That's all it is. It's a simple thank you. I remember and I honor you. So I have a chance to, as soon as I'm done, just come to your feet, come to one of these stations and then we'll close our service in honor, in honor of that holy Christ child, the light of the world.